Our sermon text this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It is about Pentecost. It is not yet Pentecost, so I'm sort of preempting a, uh, an upcoming feast. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men, from every tribe under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each hearing hearing them speak his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who speak Galileans? And, And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue, speaking of the wonderful deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has ascended and received the fullness of the Spirit from you, and that he has shared that Spirit with us, so that Spirit would dwell in us and among us, so that we could see visions and dream dreams and prophesy, and so fulfill the mission of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church, the Spirit is everywhere doing everything. Even before Jesus appears on the scene, the Spirit is active. Zechariah is told when he's, when he's, the angel Gabriel tells him he's going to have a son, his wife is going to have a son, John. Zechariah is told that his son will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of his conception. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit throughout his life. Zacharias doesn't believe the angel's report, and he goes dumb. But then when John is born and when Zacharias acknowledges that his son should be called John, the Spirit opens the mouth of Zacharias, and Zacharias prophesies and sings what we know as the Benedictus. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God of Israel. The Spirit overshadows Mary so that the 
the, the Son of God is formed in the flesh in, in Mary's womb. When Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and the baby leaps in her womb. The Spirit makes the Son flesh. It's through the agency of the Spirit that the Son of God comes among us and is tabernacled among us in the flesh. It's through the agency of the Spirit that Jesus is conceived and born. And then as Jesus continues his ministry, everything he does is empowered by the Holy Spirit. His ministry begins at the Jordan when he's baptized. And as he's baptized, he comes up out of the water and the Spirit comes on him like a dove. He's acknowledged by the voice from heaven as the Son, the beloved Son of the Father. And from that point on, everything that Jesus does throughout his entire ministry is done in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to confront the devil. The Spirit drives him to Nazareth, where he preaches in the Spirit about the Spirit and announces that he himself is the servant that was prophesied by Isaiah, the one who is going to be anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to captives, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus heralds the kingdom by the voice of the Spirit. He heals by the power of the Spirit. He casts out demons by the finger of God, which is the Spirit of God. He raises the dead by the life of the Spirit. The Spirit is everywhere doing everything throughout the ministry of Jesus. And when the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, it is that Spirit that comes to the apostles. The Spirit who has been living with, ministering with, empowering the incarnate Son, that Spirit imprinted with the life and ministry and power of Jesus, comes to the apostles to imprint that same life and ministry and power on the apostles. And so they begin to do everything that Jesus has done because they're doing it by the same spirit that Jesus had received. On the day of Pentecost, they speak in tongues and they proclaim the great things that God has done in every language, something even greater than anything Jesus had done, 3,000 are converted on that day because the Spirit has given them utterance. In our uh, reading from the, the book of Acts earlier in the service, we heard about Peter and others appearing before the Sanhedrin and proclaiming the works of God, and they are speaking in the Spirit before the Sanhedrin. The Spirit gives them speech. They carry out the same miracles. They do signs and wonders in the Spirit. They heal people in the Spirit. They raise the dead in the Spirit. They stop the mouth of musicians, magicians, not musicians, magicians in the Spirit. They don't stop the mouth of musicians. In fact, the Spirit creates music. Everywhere the Spirit goes, people start singing. Peter speaks to the Sanhedrin in the power of the Spirit. He discerns the lies of Ananias and Sapphira by the Spirit. The disciples pray in the Spirit when Peter's cast into prison. Stephen is filled with the Spirit so that none of his opponents can overcome the Spirit and the wisdom that is in him. And Stephen dies as the first Christian martyr in the Spirit with the words of Jesus on his lips. And once Stephen dies, the Spirit which was poured out in Jerusalem on the apostles begins to flow out and is unleashed outside of Jerusalem. The mission of the church in the book of Acts really begins not with the ascension of Jesus, but the mission of the church outside of Jerusalem, at least, begins with the martyrdom of Stephen because that unleashes the Spirit, first of all, to Samaria, 
as Jesus had prophesied, as Jesus had predicted. You'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Philip, filled with the Spirit, goes to Samaria, and you have a little Pentecost. The Spirit comes on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans speak in tongues. And then the Spirit directs Philip to go to the chariot of an Ethiopian eunuch, and he proclaims the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Spirit whisks him off somewhere else to carry on his ministry. When Peter has visitors, Gentile visitors coming to his house, it's the Spirit who speaks to him and tells him that he should receive these Gentile visitors and not consider them unclean. The Jews and then the Gentiles are knit together because the Spirit is at work in the apostles. The Spirit chooses and sends and empowers the mission of Paul and Silas. And not only initiates it, pushing it, getting it started, the Spirit is at work at every moment in the mission of Paul. Whether Paul's uh, uh, continuing his pathway, continuing his journey on a mission to Asia, or whether he's blocked and has to redirect his missionary work, both of those are actions of the Spirit. The decision of the Jerusalem Council is made in the Spirit. It seemed good to us and to the Spirit. At the end of Acts, the Spirit drives Paul to Jerusalem, even though he knows he's going to be arrested and chained and taken off to Rome. Jesus says the Spirit blows where he will. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And the Spirit who blows where he wishes is the Spirit of Pentecost, the Spirit of the Apostles. We think of keeping step with the Spirit maybe as a, a leisurely stroll. The Spirit is beside us, or the Spirit is just ahead of us. But in the book of Acts, the Spirit is going and doing things unexpectedly. He goes to the Samaritans, and the apostles have to catch up because they aren't expecting the Samaritans to receive the Spirit. And the Spirit falls on Gentiles. And the apostles wonder, what's going on here? They've received the same Spirit. What should we do now? Keeping step with the Spirit is more like sprinting to keep up with the Spirit as the Spirit continues on the mission of Jesus. As much as Jesus is the hero of the Gospels and also the hero of the book of Acts, the Spirit is a hero of the Gospels and the book of Acts. He is everywhere doing everything. And the, and the event of Pentecost, in fact, reveals to us what the church is for, what the church is, and reveals to us some deep things about the mission of the church. The, the, gift of the, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost is a fulfillment of promises from the Old Testament. It's a fulfillment of Old Covenant types and shadows. Pentecost, of course, was a Jewish feast. Fifty days after Passover, the Jews celebrated Pentecost as a harvest feast, the beginning of the harvest. And so to this fulfilled Pentecost is a harvest festival, not a harvest of grain or barley, but a harvest of people, people from every nation under heaven, from every tribe and tongue that are gathered there in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of Pentecost are now incorporated into the Christian feast of Pentecost. The harvest begins. The nations are being brought into the, into the uh, storehouse of God. Pentecost was also a celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai. Passover is a celebration of the deliverance from Egypt. In the third month, uh, Israel celebrated the arrival at Sinai and the giving of the law at Pentecost. 
In the seventh month, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, where they commemorated their journeys through the wilderness. And this fulfilled Pentecost is also about the giving of the law. But the law that's given at Pentecost, at this fulfilled Pentecost, is not a law that's written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit begins writing the law of God on the tablets of the human heart so that we can keep the law, so the law can be fulfilled among us because the Spirit gives us power and writes the law on our hearts. The upper room where the disciples are is another Sinai, and the Spirit has come to give the law, to make the law real, to fulfill the law in the church. The Spirit comes as a rushing, mighty wind, like the wind of the Spirit at the beginning of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. This Spirit that comes on the apostles is the Spirit of creation coming as a rushing, mighty wind to form a new creation, first of all among the apostles, then among all those who receive the Spirit, then within the physical creation itself, as those who are filled with the Spirit take dominion and rule over the creation, the Spirit comes as the Spirit of new creation. He comes as the rushing, mighty wind that formed a new creation back at the time of the flood. The flood decreated the world. It brought the world back under the formless, into the formless void condition of the original creation. A deep, and then the rushing, mighty wind of the Spirit sweeps over the deep of the flood, and a new creation emerges. The Spirit comes again here at Pentecost, at this fulfilled Pentecost, to form new creation among the disciples. The Spirit comes as a rushing, mighty wind and fills the house where they're sitting. And we're reminded of the events at the end of Exodus and the events at the dedication of the temple when the Spirit of God in the form of the glory of God fills the inner sanctuary of the house of God. The glory that's been on Sinai comes and occupies the most holy place and the Lord is enthroned in glory above the cherubim. When Solomon builds his temple, the same glory fills the house. That's what's happening at this upper room. This upper room is the new inner sanctuary. This upper room, not Jerusalem's temple, which is just a few doors down from where they're meeting. The Spirit doesn't fall there because the Spirit is falling and filling a new temple. But this is a very different temple than the temple of old. He fills the upper room, but more importantly, he fills a living temple, a human temple, a temple in which the apostles are foundation stones, and all those who receive the Spirit through the preaching of the apostles become living stones of this living human temple. The temple of old is fulfilled in the church. But that's not the only innovation here. You might remember at the end of Exodus when the glory fills the house, everyone leaves. Everyone has to vacate. Moses, Moses has been up in the cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. But when the cloud comes into the sanctuary, he can't stay in the tabernacle. He has to get up and leave. When the glory fills the temple, all the priests go out of the temple because they can't stand in the presence of the glory. That doesn't happen to the apostles. 
The Spirit comes. The glory fills the house. It fills the upper room. And they stand with unveiled face in the presence of the glory because they are going to be transformed from glory to glory in the image of the glory that is Jesus. God is doing something new. God has made them new. He's made it possible for human beings to stand in the presence of the glory, not recoil, not vacate, but stand in the presence of the glory and become human forms of that glory. And there's still yet another novelty in this new temple filled with his spirit. When the Lord filled the tabernacle, when the glory came down on the most holy place, fire shot out from the tabernacle and lit the altar. All of the pieces of the sacrifices had been laid in the altar. It was ready to go. And when the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim, then he lights up his hearth. He lights up his fire. And at the temple, the same thing happens. When the glory fills the temple, then the Lord lights his fire on the, on the altar. The same thing is happening here, but with a, diff- with a twist. Jesus has gone into the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus has entered into his rest. Jesus has taken his throne in heaven, and he sends fire from heaven, not on an altar of earth or stone or bronze. He sends his fire from heaven on human altars. The temple is humanized. We are the temple. The altars are humanized. Each one of the apostles is burning with a tongue of fire on his head because he's become a living sacrifice. Have to kill things anymore to sacrifice to God. We are living sacrifices, offering ourselves by the fire of the Spirit as a sweet smelling savor, spreading the aroma of Christ because the Spirit has come out from the heavenly sanctuary and lit us as the altars of God. Filled with the Spirit, they begin to speak in other tongues. And that's a fulfillment of their mission, but it's also a fulfillment or reversal of one of the great falls of the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis, and you find in Genesis 10, there's a list of nations, the 70 nations that descended from Noah and his sons. And in the next chapter, there's the Tower of Babel story, where the, the, uh, the, the nations tried to gather together in defiance of God, build a city and a tower that reached to heaven. And God scatters them and confuses their language so they can't communicate with each other. And the nations are divided from each other. A table of nations, and then you have the fall of the nations. Well, Luke reverses that. He reverses it in term, in textually. First of all, here you have the spirit and tongues, a miracle of language. And then you have a list of nations. All the nations that are gathered there at Pentecost who hear the gospel in their own language. He reverses the order of Genesis 10 and 11. Instead of being a table of nations and then a curse on language, there's a blessing on language and then a table of nations. And that textual reversal is a sign of the actual reversal of Babel. The nations are going to continue to speak their own languages. Pentecost doesn't bring Esperanto to all the nations. They don't all speak the same language. Now the languages and the nations are being knit together and harmonized. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. The blessing of God is being poured out on the nations. The nations that were divided and uh, at odds and split and incapable of communicating because of the curse at Babel 
are now being brought together. 3,000 of them from all these different nations are baptized on this one day. And they are by the end of the day, they're sitting down at a single table, breaking bread and listening to the teaching of the apostles. That's what the church is. The church is the true united nations. It's the place where God is knitting nations together. People from every tribe and tongue and nation are being brought into the church, filled with the same spirit, united together at one table with one baptism. And that begins at Pentecost. In Luke, especially, and in Acts, the spirit is everywhere doing everything. He's the hero of the story as much as Jesus is the hero. He's fulfilling the promises of God and the types and shadows of the Old Covenant just as much as Jesus is. But I think we're often reticent to talk too much about the Spirit. We, we reformed, we uh, truly reformed people. And we're, we're kind of cowed and intimidated because Pentecostals talk up the Spirit. And we think they kind of maybe exaggerate a little bit about what the Spirit's up to. And so we stand back. That may not be the Spirit. I don't know if that's the Spirit or not. We don't talk about the Spirit as much as we talk about other things. I suggest that we react to Pentecostal and Charismatics, Pentecostals and Charismatics, by trying to outdo them. Out-Pentecostal the Pentecostals. Out-Charismatic the Charismatic. Talk more about the Spirit. Magnify the Spirit more than even they do in, uh, in acting improvisational acting, there's a, a term that's used that's over-acceptance. When you're improvising a, a skit and somebody does something, you don't try to stop what they're doing and do something else. You accept what they're doing and you build on what they do. I suggest we over-accept the Pentecostals. What do I mean by that? Let me give a couple of illustrations. The Pentecostals, or some Pentecostals, preach a prosperity gospel. They say that if you're truly filled with the Spirit and you're truly walking in faith, then everything's going to go well. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. Your kids will be above average. Your wife will be beautiful. Your husband will be handsome. Everything will go right for you if you're walking in the Spirit. And if that's not happening, if you're being frustrated in life, if your life is full of struggles and apparent failures, then something's wrong with you. You need to get in step with the Spirit. You need to increase your faith. But that's not how the Spirit works in the book of Acts. Yeah, the Spirit is the source of every success in the book of Acts. And the Spirit is also at work in every apparent failure in the book of Acts. Every open door and every closed door comes from the Spirit. Paul wants to keep ministering in Asia, but the Spirit keeps him from doing that. And eventually the Spirit gives him a dream of a man from Macedonia calling him over to Macedonia. And he crosses over and begins a different ministry. That closed door is a closed door from the Spirit, not just the open door into Macedonia. When they're weak, as much as when they're strong, that's the work of the Spirit. In the Spirit, they are more than conquerors, and in the Spirit, they are suffering for Jesus' sake. That's one of the main points of 2 Corinthians. Paul's trying to justify his apostolic ministry. He's got people saying, this guy suffers all the time. How can, oh, he's, he's getting beat up all the time. He's getting stoned. How can he be an apostle of Jesus? Is he supposed to be filled with power? 
Paul over accepts that criticism. My suffering is my qualification for my apostolic ministry. I am, a, I am a minister of Jesus Christ, the crucified, not only in the words that I speak, but in my very body. I bear the brand marks of Jesus Christ. I exalt in my sufferings because my sufferings are part of the ministry of the Spirit to you, Corinthians. Not just my successes, but all my apparent failures are part of the Spirit's work. We might have some people tell us that if you're struggling, if you're combating sin, you can't seem to overcome it. That's a sign that you're not walking in the Spirit. Because if you're walking in the Spirit, be gone. You'd stamp it down and be over. It's not how the Spirit works. The Spirit invades our lives and a war begins. We are in the flesh. And there is in our flesh no good thing. And if there is a struggle and a war going on in your life between your sinful inclinations and the Spirit, that's a sign of the Spirit's presence, not a sign of His absence. That battle and all the fits and starts, all the partial victories and the re apparent retreats, all of that is part of the Spirit's battle against your flesh to conform you to the image of Christ. That's not a sign that you're not walking in the Spirit. As long as the battle is going on, the Spirit is there with you. Let me take another example. Charismatics have a temptation to, a lust, you could say, for display, for the spectacular. The Spirit is at work when people speak in tongues. The Spirit is at work when people rise from the dead, when they're great, when they're healings, when people prophesy, when there's a spectacular display of power. You can see why they think that. I mean, look at Pentecost. Look what the Spirit is doing on Pentecost. A rushing mighty wind, fire on tops of their heads, 3,000 people converted, Peter boldly proclaiming the gospel, this Peter who was denying Jesus just a few weeks before. That's a spectacular display of the Spirit's power. But think about what happens at the end of the day of Pentecost. When all of the noise is over, when all the people have been baptized, those 3,000 people baptized in a single day, a lot of baptisms. What's happening at the end of the day? People are gathering together to hear the apostles' doctrine. They're breaking bread together. They're communing together. They're communing together in prayer. And that is the Spirit's work, the quiet work of the Spirit. That's not spectacular. Nobody's going to notice. They aren't going to get a crowd when they're gathering together to break bread together and listen to the apostles' teaching. And they're going to do that day by day by day. You're not going to get a big crowd coming around listening to you. They're not going to be making headlines. But that's the Spirit's work. That's the Spirit's characteristic work. That's not ordinary, humdrum. That's the work of the Spirit of God. When you have people from different nations and people from different ethnic groups, people from different economic levels gathering together at a single table, that's the Spirit at work. When you have people who are of one mind, devoting themselves to the one mission of Jesus, united together in prayer, that's the Spirit's work. The Spirit makes the ordinary extraordinary. There is no ordinary thing in the church because it's all the work of the Spirit, not just the spectacular displays. The Spirit is the Spirit of communion. Wherever communion is happening, 
there the Spirit is. The church for millennia, almost two millennia, has confessed that the Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. The Nicene Creed calls the Spirit the Lord and giver of life, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. The Spirit of God is the living God, and that Spirit has come to us. God has sent God to be with us. God has sent God to live with and in you. The Spirit who hovered over the waters of creation. The Spirit who blew away the waters of the flood. The Spirit who clothed the judges so they could do great deeds in battle against the enemies of God. The Spirit that came on Jesus. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That divine Spirit lives in you and among you. You're not ordinary people. You are divine people. You're living divine lives even as you're living in the flesh. You're not Jesus. You're not an, you're not an incarnation in the flesh of the eternal spirit. But your life is not just a human life because the spirit is with you and in you. The life by which the living God is life, that life lives in you. The love by which the God of love is love, that love has been poured out in you. Every time you look in the mirror, you are looking at the temple of God. Some of us, somewhat dilapidated temple perhaps, but you're a temple of God. Every time you look at your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, the person down the road that you don't know very well here at this church, you are looking at a living temple of the Holy Spirit. We should be in awe of ourselves, not because we're so great, but because God in his humility dwells with us and in us. We should be in awe of one another. Because everyone you meet that confesses the name of Christ does it by the power of the Spirit. And every time you meet another Christian, you're face to face with another temple of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. That's who you're made to be. Irenaeus, the early church father, put it pithily, perhaps somewhat confusingly, but I think truly. God became man so that man might become God. Irenaeus did not mean that we become additional members of the Holy Trinity. It doesn't mean that we become eternal God, but we, we are made by the incarnation of Jesus and by the Spirit into images of God that are transparent to the glory and the life and the love and the power of God. That's the whole point why God made you. That's the whole point of the incarnation, so that you could live this divine life in the Spirit. We should be in awe of one another. We should be in awe of ourselves. We should be in awe of the fact that this is what this, this is the life we live. The Spirit is forming Christ in your flesh. Paul says in Galatians that he labors, and he means you to pick up the, the, uh, the imagery of pregnancy and birth. He labors over the Galatians until Christ 
is formed in them. And the Spirit is laboring over this congregation, every congregation of Jesus Christ. He's laboring over each one of you until Christ is formed in you so that you can live that divine human life, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Pentecost. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you that you have come to us by your Spirit. We thank you that you dwell with us and among us and in us. We praise you for this great gift. We're in awe of what you've done for us, of your humility and your condescension, your grace. We pray, Father, that we would live according to the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, that we would not grieve the Spirit, but the Spirit would form in us your glory so that we would reflect the glory of our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.